So if you have a, an HTML file input and you normally click that, it opens up this file picker UI and you can you know select one of the files or multiple files and the file input gets that binary data for that file. But for mobile devices, you can actually make a better experience by setting the capture attribute on that file input. And you can set it to either user or environment. And depending on which selection, you can sort of have access to the user's camera, either the front-facing or back-facing camera and or microphone. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Century and their upcoming developer experience conference called DEX, Sort the Madness. This is a hybrid event you can attend in San Francisco or virtually on September 28th. They have an amazing speaker lineup. And I'm here with Sarah Guffles, head of DevRel at Century. Sarah, what's the story with this conference? Well, coding is hard. We at Century know this. We integrate with everything that we possibly can to make that process easier for developers, to make fixing errors and performance issues actionable as quickly as possible. And we can't fix this. <laughs> we can't fix fix the fact that coding is hard. We can't fix the fact that our ecosystem continues to grow and get ever more complex. So we created DEX. DEX by Century stands for Developer Experience. And the goal here is to ignite this conversation, this community around the fact that coding is hard and that we need to come together as an entire industry to solve for the people problems, for the tools problems, for the process problems, whatever the problems are. We need to come together and share various solutions and approaches to making that developer experience better. And that's why this year, we have invited speakers only. We actually didn't have a CFP. We have Guillermo, the CEO of Vercel. We've got April, who leads GitHub Code Spaces. Jewel, who's been an engineering leader at Reddit for over five years. Divya, who is an incredible engineer and leader at Fly.io. And so many more people that have just a vast amount of experience leading through chaos, leading through these moments of, oh my God, I just took down YouTube or, oh my God, there's this huge outage on Dropbox. And they have a lot of experience, knowledge, and suggestions for how we can get started on improving our developer experience. If you can't come in person, which it'll be in San Francisco at the Pearl, highly recommend you still register and attend our live stream version. We actually have Anthony, who's a Century engineer, who is also an avid Twitch streamer, who will be hosting our live streamed event. So it's not just some awkward camera in the corner. But if you can come in person, we definitely welcome you. And I I hope to see you there. Okay, virtually or in person, either works. Save your seat now using this trusted Billy link. That's bit.ly slash DEX2022. That's bit.ly slash DEX2022. The link is in the show notes. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. You can find us on the web at jsparty.fm. There you'll see our latest episodes, listener favorites, as well as our recommendations. There's also a request form so you can let us know what you want to hear about on the pod. Thank you to our partners at Fastly for shipping our shows super fast to wherever you listen. Check them out at Fastly.com. And to Fly.io, host your app servers close to your users. No ops required. Learn more at Fly.io. Okay, hey, it is party time, y'all.
hoy. Welcome to JS Party. I'm your host this week, Nick. Hoy hoy again. Ahoy hoy. Welcome to a special for me birthday edition of JS Party. <laughs> and I'm joined today by K Ball. K Ball, what's up? Hey, happy birthday. I didn't realize. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. I woke up early, ordered an iPhone, and then had a refrigerator appointment, and now I need a new refrigerator. So yay. <laughs> <laughs> I get a refrigerator for my birthday. Can only go up from there, right? So this should be good. Right. <laughs> yeah, welcome. And, and uh, we also have another exciting guest. First time guest with us today is Austin Gill. Austin, what's up? Boop, boop, boop. What's up? It is your birthday. It is. I saw your tweet. That's great. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just got hit right before this with the refrigerator news, and I'm not excited about it. But my refrigerator doesn't run JavaScript, so we don't have to talk about that anymore. Are you sure? That might be why it's gone down. That, that is true, probably. Now you get the opportunity to upgrade to a refrigerator that does run JavaScript. That's true. They do have ones with screens now. I'm sure that that's probably a thing. Oh, wait, are you going to get a surveillance refrigerator? I hope not. No. Okay. They try to sell it to you. Oh, smart this and smart that. And every time I'm like, yeah. why would I want a surveillance this and a surveillance that? Like, I don't want Amazon in my house in that way. I don't even let my TVs be on the internet. Like I have a third party box that goes that like streaming stuff goes through instead because I, I just don't trust them. Ugh. But we're going to talk about stuff like that, like your TV, not necessarily your TV capturing your video, but uh, maybe other things. But first, Austin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, my name's Austin Gill. I have been building websites for, I don't know, like 10 years. And I started in agency work, which was a lot of fun doing WordPress stuff, which I always advise to people to do a little bit of everything. Like the agency work is really cool because mm -hmm. you can really hone the process of doing the same sort of projects over and over and just like get it better and better. And it's fun to, to do that. Um, and then I also did some product work for several years and that's interesting because you kind of get to go in a more vertical direction and the problems never go away. They just get harder and harder, yep. but then you also have to deal with like technical debt a little bit more and, yeah, stuff that gets swept under the rugs. All throughout that time, I've been kind of doing open source work and writing blogs and creating content out there. And I don't know why it took me so long, but I realized that I might actually get paid to do it by doing developer advocacy. So I am doing that now for Akamai, which is an excellent company. And we recently acquired Linode, which has been a lot of fun for my work. So that's me. And I actually have a little bit of a history with K-Ball, which is fun and interesting. I don't know, maybe K-Ball can take it from here. Yeah, I mean, I was looking back. So many listeners know I used to publish a newsletter and you were, I think, possibly the most engaged subscriber <laughs> of my newsletter, both in terms of responding back to me, but also you know, sending me articles, sending me feedback, all sorts of stuff, which I always appreciated. But I was looking back through my email and the first email exchange that we had was around... San Diego JavaScript and, or San Diego JS, which I'm kind of curious. At the time, you, I think, had recently gotten involved with organizing there and you were kind of looking at history and discovered that I had been one of the people who started up. But are you still engaged with them? What's going on there? Yeah. So the San Diego JS community is cool. I moved from San Diego since then. And over the course of the pandemic, it was hard for a lot of meetup organizers to 
figure out what they're doing and make sure that the community is healthy, but also making sure that, I don't know, it just took a lot of wind out of the sails. So I went from an attendee to an organizer and then eventually joined the board of directors because it is a nonprofit organization, as you would know. That post states me, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah, one of the really fun things for me about San Diego JS is how it basically started as a hey, we should have a JavaScript meetup. Why don't we have a JavaScript meetup? And everybody said, yeah, we should have a JavaScript meetup. Why don't we have a JavaScript meetup? Until I said, well, okay, let's start a JavaScript meetup. And we were just starting basically squatting for space in different people's places. And we started off, I think we were hosting in a co-working spot where I had a membership and all these things. So it, it was very guerrilla style, like no formalities. I just ran things and found speakers. Patrick helped me with uh, some organizational and like mostly he was running San Diego Jazz. So he was like, here's what you need to do. You need to make sure you do this and this and this. But then we started like handing it off to people. And each set of person who was running it expanded it and said, okay, well, now that we're going to have two people coordinating it more, now we're going to add this. Now we're going to you know put this process in place. I, I actually did not know that it was formerly a nonprofit now, but that's great. But it's one of those fun, like catch lightning in a bottle things. Because, you know, I think it was... 2011 or something when I, I started it. And not that long after, JavaScript started just going haywire. And it, you know that, that site or that group blew up to be one of the largest tech communities in San Diego. And yeah, it was, it's crazy. But no, I had no idea that they were a nonprofit now. And that there was like that formal piece of it. Yeah, yeah. So shout out to SDJS. And honestly, I could go on and on. I know this is not the topic that we were going to discuss, but the community stuff and meetups and organizing, it's so cool because it was so instrumental in my career early on as just an attendee. Uh, a great place to, if you want to build your network or potentially get hired, going to meetups and talking and networking and making friends. It's awesome. And I wish that we could come up with a good template for other meetup organizers, because I think that San Diego JS just had something really special in that before the pandemic, it was the largest tech meetup in San Diego, which is a large city. And we had, I think, eight events a month. So every week there was two events going on. And I think that just the way that that grew, like you said, was with people stepping up and wanting to say like, hey, there's no view specific meetup in San Diego and we would like to do that. And as organizers, we're like, cool, you want to do that? You're in charge. And really just the community stepping up and owning that sort of leadership and making it happen. And, and sometimes things fell out and whatever, but it was a good way that you could sort of scale up the organization and give people what they want and give back to the community. And it was great. I loved it. That's awesome. I haven't been involved with a tiny meetup like SDJS, but I have run Nebraska JS <laughs> and you know, I'm sure we're much, much bigger, Yeah, but no, we face the same problems. One of my goals is to not let it just die under me because the pandemic kind of just took all the wind out of the sails. As you mentioned, we had one meetup during the whole thing on zoom and it was, it was good, like a good topic and a good speaker, but just finding people to contribute online to that is so much harder than it is in person. And I really want to bring it back because I think that it's important for the community because it, it helped me so much in my early career. And it'd be a shame for meetups like that to not exist anymore. Yeah, the pandemic was hard. I mean, on one hand, the digital meetups are great because yeah. you can 
reach a larger audience for people that maybe couldn't attend for geographical or financial reasons before and and now they can and there's so much more content available but it is mm-hmm. i think different strokes for different folks like for me the in person stuff was just so good and very energizing for my career agreed so it seems to be coming back a bit and we'll see what the future looks like yeah and kind of along those like those kind of meetups don't have to be like tied to geography really anymore. And I've seen some really vibrant and really active Discord communities that are just constantly, I can't even keep up with Discord. I like how many channels are in there and, and all of that. But then there's like, you can live stream in like within Discord or like hybrid between that and Twitch and other things. And it's just a nice, easy way to like have no barrier to entry, regardless of where you live to get in on that. And it's just really cool. Yeah. I feel like I face the same thing when it comes to conferences, right? Like there's a lot of really cool stuff about digital conferences and the low barriers and all of that. And I still don't do any of them. And the reason is because I'm still remote myself. Like I'm in video calls all day anyway. I don't <laughs> want to do that more for fun. And to really, like I go to a conference to get into a different mental and physical space and like more video calls doesn't do it for me. Exactly. And honestly, when I go to a conference, I don't go to the talks. Like, yeah. I'll watch them later. Yeah. Well, and for meetups are an interesting example, too, because you, you talk about the the networking, right? So like back when we started it, we had two sessions a month. So eight is, is phenomenal. We had two. One was talks and one was a hack together. And the hack together was so much more fun and valuable in some ways because it was like, OK, we're just jamming in space. We're hanging out oh, you're working on a cool project here, let me see, you know? And it was also asterisk for meetup organizers in there. It's a great hack to find talks because if you're the meetup organizer, you go around the hack day and you're like, what are you working on? Hey, that's really cool. You want to give a talk about that? And most engineers, like if you just say abstractly, do you want to give a talk at my meetup? They're going to be like, what would I talk about? I don't know, no. But if they're working on a cool project and you're like, yeah, I love your project. Tell me more about it. Okay, I bet other people would be interested. Can you just tell them it could be five minutes, no big deal. Like suddenly the barriers are lower and you get a much wider range of folks coming and talking at your, your more talk focused meetup. So it's a fun way to do it. And of course, you know, the after, I mean, this has pros and cons as well, but the after meetup go out for pizza and beer or whatever it, it might be, was another just great way to connect as human beings and network and build those networks. Yeah, I mean, I think the the networking term or the term networking kind of has like a a negative connotation to it, but there's just, it's professional networking. It's also social networking. Like I made so many friends that would just come and hang out at my house and play board games and stuff. And in the larger scheme of this, like potential loneliness pandemic that people are facing, like just getting out and doing things that you're interested in with other people that are interested in the same things. It's, it's great. Mm -hmm. Totally. I used to have this big barrier. I was like, networking, I'm not good at it. I don't like it. What is it? But then I changed my mind around when I realized that networking just means talking to people and talking to people who are interested in the same type of stuff you're interested in. That's it. As a software developer, you go to a meetup, you talk to people about software, that's networking. Congratulations. The next time you need a job, you go to those people you talk to and say, hey, is your company hiring? I'm kind of looking around. And they like you, you like them. They'll say, yeah, come on over, come interview. Yeah. And honestly, giving a talk meetup or conference or whatever, it's one of the best hacks to advancing your career because for that 
span of time that you are on stage or at the podium or whatever, you are the expert in the room, you know, and you may not feel that way. Like I know we all deal with imposter syndrome and there's definitely, I wonder why I'm the guy with the microphone when I know that there's at least half of the people in the audience that probably are going to be able to correct me and come up to me after my talk and say, um, actually, and you know, that's fine because they didn't apply or whatever. You're the one with the mic and you kind of get that spotlight on you. And I think that some people don't like to be in the spotlight, but for those of you that are thinking about it or considering it, it's really is such a good way to just build your credibility and have something to point to and say, I know what I'm talking about. And in fact, most people will actually come to you. Exactly. It's even more of a networking hack because now you not only do not have to worry about finding people with interesting things to talk about. You don't even have to figure out what to talk about or who to reach out to. They'll come to you. They want to talk to you about the thing you talked about. It's a great, great approach. Yeah. And it's good to give back to like, I love teaching people and mentoring and it's great. Yeah. And kind of speaking of that, Austin, is it my understanding that you also do like live streaming (laughs) of coding? Like, do you do that as well? Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. The content that I'm creating these days, uh, I have a podcast. I do a live stream uh, once a week now on Twitch and it's fun. I mean, I'm trying to get more people to come and make it like a collaborative live stream thing and just like let's hack together, you know, and the live streaming stuff is it's really weird because you go from I want to. I don't know. Like if you go from creating scripted content or even like blog posts, written content, there's like a formula to honing it and like crafting it and then coming up with a final product that is coherent. And with live streaming, a lot of the time you're just like off the cuff, nothing's prepared. I mean, it's, if you ever see someone that live streams on a presentation and they upgraded their dependencies the night before or the Wi-Fi goes down and there's just like scrambling. Think of that, but over the course of the entire time, you know, and you're just like, I don't know what I'm doing. There's people that are on the show that are, are like in the chat that are correcting me and it's stressful. And it's so weird because live streaming almost, it becomes less about the content and more about the performance or the community that you're building, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's really strange, but it's also rewarding because as transitioning into developer advocacy, they don't tell you how little you actually code. And I got into coding because I love it. So it's been hard to see that shift in the time and focus, but it's fun. I like it. Yeah. No, it seems fun. I've tried it once without telling anyone just like, could I set this up on Twitch and get it going? And, and I, you know, I didn't have anybody actually listening or participating but like I was thinking about that and I just feel like <laughs> how could you possibly be trying to do something while paying attention to the chat and interacting with them while you're Googling the parameters to reduce for the 400th time? Like it's that's how I would be like it'd just be so difficult to to focus on one thing or, or anything. Yeah, it's not a conducive environment for getting actual work done. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so do you like not to to see how the sausage is made or whatever the phrase is, but like. Do you come with like something that you want to do and maybe like, I feel like if I were going to do it, I'd be like, okay, I want to build this thing and I will build it beforehand. And then I will try and redo it on a stream or something just so I'm like, oh, but I won't hit that roadblock live and fail live. Yeah. Is that like a, a trick to the, to the streaming setup or? Yeah, I've done both. And, and again, I think it comes back to treating streaming as a different platform than 
some of these other platforms. Like if you want to do video content that's like a tutorial or really focused on teaching, then you kind of want to have more of a scripted approach and get to a final product before the video's over, obviously, mm-hmm. and have those sorts of takeaways. And I think what I've learned with streaming is that, again, it's sort of more of an entertainment show. And because it's live, you really benefit from having that unscripted, authentic experience. So some of the streams that I've done that have been more like successful or engaging, we actually didn't even get make any progress. But then I've done some other streams where it's like, cool, I have a project that I've actually built out in my free time. And now we're going to walk through and like do this as more of a teaching thing. That also works pretty well. And people are like, oh, it's uh, it's cool. Or or there's shows that are even, you know, like Jason Langstorff, he, he does learn with Jason and he's kind of not really engaging with the audience because he has a guest on and they're talking through this thing and building it out. So I don't know. I think either option works. What it comes down to is that folks like the authenticity of the person yeah. that's running the stream. And if you show up and you want to show up with like pre-designed content, do that and the people will find you that are into that. And if you want to show up and just like stumble your way and babble around like I do and people laugh at you because you're wearing green cat ear headphones, <laughs> that works too. You know, most of our listeners weren't going to know that until you said it. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Give them something to for the imagination. If you're hearing this, the podcast and you want to see go to the live youtube recording and you will see austin's amazing green cat ear headphones they are amazing <laughs> this episode is brought to you by our friends at Vercel, the platform that enables front-end teams to do their best work Vercel combines the best developer experience with an obsessive focus on end-user performance. And I'm here with Jared Palmer, head of open source at Vercel and the creator of Turbo Repo. Now, Jared, obviously Turbo makes things faster and Vercel is all about making the web faster. But how does that translate to a better experience for developers when building and shipping? So fast wins. Fast is so important to us at Vercel. And the ROI on Turbo is pretty remarkable, both in monetary terms and in developer happiness. So let's just talk ROI and money in monetary terms here. And I'm not going to use our calculator for this. I'll just use Gradle, which is another build system in the Java ecosystem. Using their calculator for a 75-person engineering team with around 10-minute builds. And let's just say that Turbo, they're able to effectively use Turbo to cut their build by like roughly 50 to 85%. And let's use Gradle's sort of idea that around 20% of CI builds are blocking, meaning they can't. a developer can't actually work. They have to wait for the CI to finish. In tandem, both local and CI builds collectively will save that enterprise, that 75-person engineering team, with let's just say an average cost per developer of like $185,000 a year, roughly a million dollars a year. And that's just on CI time alone. Now, what that doesn't account for in any way, shape, or form is the fact you're going to feel about your work, your code base, what you're working on, when you have a one minute build or a 30 second build or a two minute build versus a 10 minute build. In the 10 minute build situation, you're gonna go get a cup of coffee, you're gonna check Twitter, you're gonna browse TikTok. One minute build situation, you can really stay in the flow. And so that's why it is so essential for us to invest in Turbo to make sure that we keep builds as fast as they were on day one of your project as they are currently on, let's say, like day 500. And that's where we're seeing immense adoption in the enterprise space, but also through solo developers. 
And if you go to turborepo.org, you can see uh, this wonderful list of enterprises that have adopted Turbo. And we'll be sharing some stories in the not so distant future and some case studies as well uh, on our website talking about their journey with Turbo. I love it. Fast is always better. Fast wins. Learn more at Vercel.com. Again, Vercel.com. I love that so much. So great. (laughs) Okay. So I'll start off and I'll say that something that I learned, I think in the last show I brought up Obsidian and was talking about that amazing note-taking application and some cool plugins that they have. Well, I've been looking at their plugin API and trying to write my own, which has been a lot of fun. It's all in TypeScript, which is just super easy. You can, you clone a project and get running with it right away. It gives you an ES build script that like will compile everything for you. You create a manifest and it will just, and then you can just load it into Obsidian and play with it. And I've been creating one that just makes it easier for me to work with GitHub links because GitHub, like copying, going to there, copying like a pull request link and then putting it into my notes for later, just so that I can click on it again to like check the status of it or whatever. Like it's just tedious. And so this will just let me type like GH colon and then like, the repo and the PR number, and it will auto create a link for it right there and put a status on it just by hitting the GitHub API and checking all of that. So it makes it really easy to like create more of a dashboard of what I'm working on right from within Obsidian. So I'm pretty excited about that. I've gotten the pieces all together, but nothing tangible, like as in it's doing exactly what I want, but I get the response from GitHub that I want. And I have made like some fake things to inject into the Obsidian renderer. And now it's just a matter of putting it all together, but I'm pretty excited about that. And so I guess that's the TIL is uh, the Obsidian plugin API. It's really cool. I'm so curious about that because it's like the second brain thing, right? Where everything's kind yeah. of connected and it looks cool. It's amazing. And it's a big rabbit hole if you let it be. So yeah, it seems like it. <laughs> <laughs> Proceed with caution. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I still haven't looked. Last episode we talked about it, and it might be the thing that pulls me off of Rome Research, which is a similar type of app, but is not extensible in the same way. So I still haven't had time to dig in. But next time I actually have a day where I'm not having to work or deal with kids stuff. <laughs> yeah, this is my ongoing theme for the show is every time I'm on with K-Ball, I'm just going to be like, Obsidian. Obsidian did this really cool thing. And yeah, just keep... Keep prodding at that. Hey, you know, it worked with TypeScript. Yeah. You got me there eventually. It only took like a year and a half. So, you know, Obsidian, if you get it faster than that, like coming out ahead. That's true. Yeah. And yeah, so Obsidian's cool. The plugin API is cool. K-Ball, have you learned something today or recently? So I don't have something as nice and concrete as what you have, but I'm going to talk about a thing that I've been learning about and thinking about and thinking about as connections. So the thing I've been learning about and thinking about is this concept of an OODA loop, which is a OODA is O-O-D-A. It stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, and Act. This was originally developed in sort of the military world and is often used to talk about military strategy, but it's become a concept that plays out in business and law enforcement and like operations research, things like that. 
at a very high level, if we think about it, it's like, okay, observe what's going on, orient yourself towards like what you might want to do about it, make a decision and then act and then loop back to, okay, observe based on your actions, things like that. So, okay, that's kind of interesting. But the thing that's been, I've been really noodling on recently is I realized that a lot of the things we do as engineers and other stuff could be modeled in this way. If you think about like the core, like agile cycle, right? When you're thinking about, okay, I'm doing backlog grooming. I'm observing what's our situation. We make decisions then we go and then we do a retro. Like I haven't mapped it perfectly, but like there's these different phases of it that in many ways potentially map to that same cycle. And so I started digging into this and people have said, you could do a similar thing for thinking about how you do scientific research, right? You're observing you're sort of orienting with a model. You're going to make a hypothesis. That you're, in that model, your decision is a hypothesis. You act by running an experiment to test that hypothesis and come back into this loop. And so, as I said, not very concrete yet, and I feel like I'm still like trying to wrap my head around it, but I'm starting to, to wonder if, like there's been a ton of people like writing about and doing stuff in this OODA loop world. A lot of it military strategy related stuff, but thinking about like, can I do a bunch of learning in that area and sort of pull it into our work as engineers and thinking about how do I manage a team of engineers? How do we set up our stuff? How do we continuously improve our process and get better and better at what we're doing? And yeah, that's about all I got. It's just kind of this, it's still a little nebulous in my head, but if you've never looked into OODA loops and thought about how that involves like how you're interacting in the world and especially in like competitive games and things like that, super cool stuff. I love this. I love things like this where it kind of gives you like a, the most basic framework of how to do something or how to think about something or how to approach something. It's just a fascinating way to try and like orient your thoughts to that and then see where it takes you. It can really change how you think about something. Yeah. I love frameworks. I'm totally a framework guy. <laughs> so does it give you uh, like a framework around time to make decisions or act? like time within to act and then you kind of do your like how to step away and actually get a perspective from which to observe. And, you know, cause I feel like it sounds like a course correction technique that mm -hmm. as humans we kind of do, but this is, it sounds like this might provide better tools to yeah. take yourself out of the human error prone side of things. Yeah, so there's a couple of pieces from where I've gotten to right now. So first off, if you think about it in terms of in a competitive scenario, which doesn't really necessarily apply in the like engineering process world, but like they're talking about a military, or he was originally developing this with related to like fighter jets and fighting each other. One, there's advantages to shortening the length of the cycle. Like if you can make it around that cycle faster, you can learn faster, you can adjust faster. And many folks have taken that as being the primary thing of like, oh, you have to have your OODA loop be faster than your opponent's OODA loop. Mm. But there's also some interesting things about depending on where, if you start to observe where in the cycle different types of things can happen, and then you can intervene or act in ways where there's like a rhythm to it. So if you recognize, oh, my, my opponent seems to be working on this cycle or they're doing these things. If I can find the right times when, okay, I'm going to get in something that's going to change the situation between their decision and their act loop. If I can time that perfectly, I'm going to F them up because they've made a decision. They've committed. They haven't seen the results of that action yet. And suddenly I'm changing the scenario out from under them. And so starting to think about like the rhythms of when do you do things and then bringing this back into to engineering, thinking about, okay, 
what is the right cycle time to make it around this cycle in a way that's going to be effective, right? If you try to do, I think, for example, in Agile, one-week sprints are probably too tight. I think one-week sprints, you don't get enough action to get useful feedback, and you end up spending too much of your time or overhead in the like decision analysis. But if you stretch it out to like a two-week sprint, you actually get potentially two weeks might be the right rhythm. Or And it may also depend a little bit on team and other things. But so yeah, there's timing is a big piece of it. And they're, the two aspects that, that I'm aware of that I'm thinking about right now are one, what is the natural time span for this? And what is the impact of shrinking versus expanding the time of your loop? And the other is, what are you primed for at different parts of your loop? And what are you sensitive to or what is disruptive in different parts of your loop? So actually in the in the engineering case, that is a, I'm just realizing this now, but like that's a big reason why you might not want to accept new work for this sprint in the middle of a sprint because you're disrupting. You've already made your decisions. You've got people going. And if you try to change your priorities in between, which let me tell you, lots of people want to do, it messes you up. And so we're actually doing an experiment on my team at work right now where we have separated out the folks who have to do reactive work from those who are doing our ongoing planning work because we were getting interruptions that have a tight turnaround. They're essentially you know, one to two day customer facing, oh, this thing happened and we need something really quickly. And it was being super disruptive for folks. And so we've separated those folks out doing that. I'm like thinking about this as we go, right? But like, if you're doing that sort of reactive work where stuff is coming in, you have to react to it, you need a really tight loop. You need, okay, here's this thing that came in. I got to understand what's going on, act on it, and get that turned around all within the course of a day. Customer support roles are going to have this, things like that. Whereas if you're trying to do something that's much larger, requires more architecture, things like that, you need a longer loop. Because if you do two type of loop, you're not going to be able to think about enough and perceive enough as you go. So I suspect there's mappings to like the different type of work you want to do and what are the natural cycle times? And then like, how do those cycle times fit with each other? And do you have the same teams doing it or different teams and how do they interface? Anyway, it still like feels like it's floating around in my head. It's not totally concrete, but I think it's super cool stuff. So next week we're going to hear you announce your new side project where you just clone Jira, but you call sprints OODA loops instead. Chances are no, but <laughs> sometime in the next couple of months, I'll probably have some articles as I think through all of this stuff. Well, yeah, we'll stick around and uh, keep a close eye so that we don't end up OODA the loop on that. You did not just say that. <laughs> oh, my That's terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's so bad. Someone that really loves puns. That was (laughs) oof. Yeah. That's what I do. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. All right. Well, Austin, have you learned something recently? Yeah. Yeah. Change the subject away from the pun. (laughs) (laughs) Nice save. (laughs) Yeah. I uh, learned about this HTML attribute called capture and I wrote a blog post about it and made a video and tweeted and all this stuff. And it kind of took off. And I think it'd be interesting to talk about the process of creating the content and what kind of happened because it, it, it ended up sort of on the front page of Hacker News and all that, which is interesting. But the actual attribute itself is also worth talking about, hence the blog post. So if you have a, an HTML file input and you normally click that, it opens up this like file picker UI and you can, you know, select one of the files or multiple files and the file input gets that, I think like the binary data for that file. 
But for mobile devices, you can actually make a better experience by setting the capture attribute on that file input, and you can set it to either user or environment. And depending on which selection, you can allow the user, or you can sort of have access to the user's camera, either the front-facing or back-facing camera and or microphone. And this is interesting because it really falls into the bucket of user experience, because if you think like, I don't know, it's sort of like adding the input mode so that when a user, if they're putting in their social security number, you can have them be greeted with a, a number keypad instead of the full keyboard. It makes their life easier. This way, if you know that you're in a scenario that the user is going to be taking a photo, maybe it's like uploading something to like to sell their product that they want to take a picture, right? Or upload a photo of for I don't know, their face, it might be easier to just have access to the camera right away instead of having to take a picture first, store it on the device, and then go to the file input, click it, and then search for the picture you just took and select it, right? So this was an interesting attribute that I was like, okay, cool. It's a like HTML brings up the camera, has access to the camera, and that's awesome. And it's not available on desktop devices for a number of reasons. But this was interesting because when I shared this, a lot of people responded with security concerns. So if you go to a website and the website uses like what we're on right now to record this, right? And you do a live stream, the browser is going to ask you, is it okay to access your camera? And with the HTML capture attribute, it actually does not. It just goes straight to the camera on the device. And people were like, oh, that's a security concern because obviously if a website has access to the camera, they can take someone's photo without their permission or maybe figure out things about their environment or background or stuff like that. And the interesting thing about this is while that would be true if you did have permissionless access to the camera, I think the way that the attribute actually works is it opens up the camera, but the camera feed or stream is not available to the website. It's just going to open up the camera in the native camera, well, the native camera access on the phone and then save that picture. I believe it gets saved to like a temporary file on the device. And then same as if you were to navigate through your folders and find the file that you want to upload to that input, it's just going to automate that process for you. So it was interesting and fascinating. I wrote about it. And uh, yeah, it kind of like took off in just getting a lot of attention, both, hey, this is cool, and whoa, this is scary. So yeah. So once that file is there, mm -hmm. the website would have access to it? Yes, but that's not really any different or more dangerous or whatever than if you just have a regular file input and it pops up the file picker UI and then the user selects that file, then the website has access to that file. So it still requires user interaction and right. like a high level of user awareness to what's going on in decision-making. Yeah, in that post that you have, you have a video of you demoing what it's actually doing and you have to press the button to actually, like you have to interact with it for the camera to actually come up. Yeah. Yeah, so that like gives you kind of the it's not just going to be like in the background reading your camera data or, or presumably your microphone data. It's just as soon as you authorize it by pressing the button, then it's going to pop up and give you that. But it's going to give you just like the camera app, which will then feed the data that it captures back to 
the temporary file that it gives you access. And then presumably from there, you could use like a file reader API or something to read that data and like draw the picture to a canvas, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. So if you captured a video, I don't think you could do like a live stream situation because that would require continuous access to the camera feed, which is not what this does. It just adds access to the already captured file or saved file. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of the distinction between like opening a window based on user action versus not, right? Like you can't open a window from JavaScript unless you're inside of an event handler triggered by user action. And this is similar in that you're not asking for the same permissions because it's being triggered directly by user action. Yeah, it was interesting. It's just like a really cool overlap of things that I'm interested is like HTML becoming more and more powerful. And it's, you know, HTML is kind of like the slowest moving web language in a good way. It's also like very forgiving and backwards compatible and it's awesome. But getting these features that are like in line with the direction of shipping less JavaScript, right? Allowing HTML to do more, allowing CSS to do more, having a lower reliance on JavaScript is great for the user in so many cases. But then it was also really interesting to think about what are the security concerns around this. And as developers working on browsers, I'm sure there's a lot more that goes into those considerations than what I actually think about. But it's cool when when someone else is sort of taking that ball and running with it and my website gets better or my applications get better as a result of someone else's work and then also the the discussion or considerations around user experience and how we can make that better. And it was just a cool cross-section of different interests for me. So mm-hmm. I wanted to share it with people and put it out there. Yeah, and it really does seem like a like the best possible way to approach something like this because, yeah, you could theoretically maybe like click that button with JavaScript and get the camera to pop up, but then you're out of the camera or you're out of the app, right? And Mm -hmm. you have to physically interact with the camera button to either take a video or take a a picture and then get that sent back. And like from a usability perspective, that's just like perfect because you're not getting prompted with, can I access your camera? And then pop open the camera and then take a picture. Does clicking on it with JavaScript work? That would concern me more on a security standpoint, because if I thought I was going somewhere and I end up and I'm on the camera, I may forget how I got to that camera and then take a picture and suddenly this potentially malicious website has access without me realizing what's going on. Yeah. So that is a good question. That is not something that I tested, but it was something that kind of came up or I came across that same idea, right? It could be you trigger it with JavaScript or it could be, you could even visually hide an input and display it as something else and kind of trick a user into clicking something like a cute kitty photo or something. And all of a sudden, without being prompted, hey, this website's trying to access your camera, is that okay? They just go straight into the camera. And even then, the security concern, there is a path where you leak some sensitive information, right? Or I guess a developer, a hacker can like get to sensitive information. And that is maybe somehow hiding the fact that there's a file input there with the camera and then somehow getting the user to actively click that input or maybe trigger it with JavaScript. And then the camera is going to open and take up the entire screen. So a user has to notice that or not notice it or either notice it and like click the capture button. The key is, do they have to make an action, right? Yes. Even if I'm interacting with something that doesn't look like an input, if I'm interacting with a website and it opens my camera, like I just 
I was just aware I'm doing a thing and it, yeah. it happened. The bigger concern for me is like, I'm loading a website. Maybe it's slow. I'm not paying attention. I get distracted. I come back and my camera's open. Do I have that mental awareness of this is related to this website, right? So if it's, yeah, even if it's like triggered via JavaScript, but it has to happen inside an event handler that's handling a user event, I'm not concerned. If it's triggerable by passive, you know, JavaScript without having an event handler involved, I feel like there's, there's danger there. I'm really tempted to just throw up a quick code pen and, and hack it out really quick. I'm sure <laughs> yeah. I could do that in like, I don't know, a minute. But now that even that has me like wondering about other potential things because it is like the trick here is that it's not giving you any kind of indicator or any kind of, it's not asking for any permissions, no. right? Like if I wanted to get your GPS location, I would have to ask if my app wanted to do that, it would have to ask and prompt like, Hey, do you want to allow this app to see your location? And it would say, okay, and give me that. Does the camera do some kind of stripping of like the EXIF, like GPS data of where the cap, the photo was taken or anything like that? Ooh, that's a really good idea. Yeah. This is where the conversation gets really interesting to me because as we put on our security hats and think of like, what is the worst way to take advantage of this? I keep coming back to this opinion that if you're so concerned about it, then you should have the same concerns for the default file picker, right? Because all of these scenarios that we're talking about, either triggering it with JavaScript or hiding it behind something that the user thinks they're clicking that is different, it all mm -hmm. still requires another action on the user's side that they actually either take the photo or select a file from their device. And maybe they walk away and forget what website they're on or something like that. And those concerns would still be there in both scenarios. So I think if you're going to be on the side of the fence that says, this is a security concern that I'm not okay with, then that still has to apply to a default file picker mm -hmm. because fundamentally the input gets access to the same file, whether it's received from directly from the camera. I'm not quite convinced by this argument and I'm going to push back on this way. No, let's do it. So if I'm picking a file mm -hmm. and I look away, and I come back and I'm in that file picker interface. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't remember. Why am I picking a file? I know I'm picking a file. So I'm like, why? I'm going to ask the question, why am I picking a file? And I'll cancel out so I can look and then restart it, right? Mm -hmm. People use the camera for all sorts of stuff, right? If it's just opening my native camera, I don't have that same immediate reaction of why am I picking a file? This is like, Picking a file is a relatively unusual action for me as a user. It's going to trigger a, a question. Taking a picture, well, for me, it's relatively unusual too. I don't take a lot of pictures. But I know people who take like hundreds of pictures a day, right? It is not always subject to that same level of scrutiny. And I think there's, mm -hmm. it's very likely to end up in an automatic, wait, I have my camera open. Great, let me take a picture of something. But also like the iPhones at least have a, a feature where you can set like an accessibility thing where if I double tap on the back of my phone, it opens the camera app. Mm. All, all the time I'm accidentally opening my camera app. Yeah. One more thing before we go even further on that. Let's go. Related to Nick's geolocation concern, which I think is a real one. If I'm doing that from a file picker, there is no guarantee that the timing of the files I'm picking are anywhere related to where I am right at this moment. But if you're getting it from the camera live, you're pretty confident that this is where this user is right now. That was going to be my pushback. It gives you that assumption that it is a extremely recent indicator of your location, whereas I could pick a file from 10 years ago and put that up there. Yeah, that's a really good point. I don't think that 
HTML file inputs would strip EXIF data, and therefore that metadata would probably also be sent along the way. So yeah, that is a good point that didn't come up. But K-Ball, to your point of like the camera being open and me, like me interacting with the website, opening the camera, looking away or getting distracted, forgetting what I was taking a photo of or that that I was on this application. I think that the file or the camera from the input is slightly different, at least in my case, than the camera that I use to take a photo. That helps a lot. Yeah, there would be a very clear delineation between what I'm looking at to take a photo and the camera that comes in the file picker. One other quick question on this. You mentioned that this only works on mobile mm-hmm. devices. Yeah. What's the fallback behavior if you have an input with this mode uh, in a desktop or a laptop browser? Yeah, so this is good news. HTML is awesome with fallbacks. It just falls back to a file input. So you would just get that file picker UI that you would be used to. And this also brings up an interesting topic, which was why isn't it supported in desktops, right? Like laptops have a front-facing camera that... Uh, it could work just the same. And I think the answer, this was a TIL, so it wasn't something that I had been doing years of research on, or, and I don't work with uh, browser manufacturers or anything like that. But I think the the HTML working group has sort of the spec on how this could work in a browser. And that would require that the camera or like the photo taking mechanism would rely on being built into sort of either the UI of the browser or built into the file picking application or something like that. So it may be something that can happen in the future, but I think that it's just on mobile devices, it's a lot more prepared for that sort of behavior. And it'd be great to talk to someone at Chrome or Firefox or Safari to get some idea or even the the working group and see what the idea is on moving forward on that. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fly. Fly lets you deploy full stack apps and databases close to your users, and they make it too easy. No ops are required. And I'm here with Chris McCord, the creator of Phoenix Framework for Elixir and staff engineer at Fly. Chris, I know you've been working hard for many years to remove the complexity of running full stack apps in production. So now that you're at Fly solving these problems at scale, what's the challenge you're facing? One of the challenges we've had at Fly is getting people to really understand the benefits of running close to a user, because I think as developers, we internalize as a CDN, people get it. They're like, oh, yeah, you want to put your JavaScript close to a user and your CSS. But then for some reason, we have this mental block when it comes to our applications. And I don't know why that is. And getting people past that block is really important because a lot of us are privileged that we we live in North America and we deploy 50 millisecond hop away. So things feel fast. Like when GitHub, maybe they're deploying regionally now, but for the first 12 years of their existence, GitHub worked great if you lived in North America. If you lived in Europe or anywhere else in the world, you had to hop over the ocean and it was actually a pretty slow experience. So one of the things with Fly is it runs your app code close to users. So it's the same mental model of like, hey, it's really important 
important to put our images and our CSS close to users, but like, what if your app could run there as well? API requests could be super fast. What if your data was replicated there? Database requests could be super fast. So I think the challenge for Fly is to get people to understand that the CDN model maps exactly to your application code. And it's even more important for your app to be running close to a user because it's not just requesting a file. It's like your data and saving data to disk, fetching data for disk, that all needs to live close to the user for the same reason that your JavaScript assets should be close to a user. Very cool. Thank you, Chris. So if you understand why you CDN, your CSS and your JavaScript, then you understand why you should do the same for your full stack app code. And Fly makes it too easy to launch most apps in about three minutes. Try it free today at fly.io. Again, fly.io. And by our friends at Hasora. Hasora lets you create dynamic, high-performance GraphQL and REST APIs from your databases in minutes with granular authorization and caching baked in. All this without touching your underlying database. Go from data to API in literally minutes. As the technology landscape evolves, a key bottleneck for teams is making data accessible, especially in enterprise environments. Modernizing applications and building new features is critically dependent on being able to shape, control, and ship your data to interfaces demanding always available real-time access. Asura solves this problem by connecting your databases, your REST servers, your GraphQL servers, and third-party APIs to provide a unified, real-time GraphQL API across all your data sources. Imagine your tech stack is a Postgres database, Go is your backend language, REST APIs, and vendors who only expose REST and React for your front end. Hasora can give you an instant GraphQL API for your front end, an API that's protected with roles, caching, and everything you expect from a secure API, and the ability to connect all your services into a single API. All this while ensuring the performance, the security, and the reliability requirements of your API layer. The most important business value Hasora provides is reducing time to market. Imagine if your team can go from data to API in literally minutes. It would be a game changer. Everything they do is through the lens of making developers productive and getting to production ready in minutes. The easiest way to get started with Hasora is with Hasora Cloud. It is fully managed and scales as you grow. Head to hasora.io slash jsparty. That's H-A-S-U-R-A dot I-O slash jsparty. Again, hasora.io slash jsparty. So Austin, in the last segment, we talked about that awesome TIL that you had about capturing video or images or microphone just from HTML. I do think it's really cool. And as like a user, I really want that convenience without having a bunch of extra pop-ups. But yeah, it remains to be seen whether it could be exploited in some weird way. I'm sure Frost is already working on figuring out a way to do that. But As you mentioned, this went viral. It went to the top of Hacker News and has gotten a lot of attention. So I thought in the last section that we could talk about what that's like, like having something, a cool TIL like that, that you learned and wrote about go viral on big sites uh, across the internet. What's it like? Oh, it's yeah, it's great. I'm getting so many. My phone has been ringing off the hook. I'm getting sponsor deals with (laughs) Nike and there's a biopic coming out soon. Lots of theoretical internet dollars. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's cool. So it was kind of interesting because it started as 
I don't even know where I came across it. It was a legitimate like TIL. I think I was on MDN. It was like, what capture attribute? What the heck is that? And read about it. It was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And threw it into a code pen and played around with it. And then um, I think I just tweeted about it because I like putting out content there that's just like helpful to people and interesting. And then from that tweet, so I do on the Akamai dev channel, we're trying to give back a lot of what we like to call like community karma and really invest into developer education and yeah, just giving back to the community. So I took this and every week or every other week, I think I have a video series called Web Dev Office Hours where I just talk about stuff like this. They're like five minute long videos, a little bit more produced than live streams, but things that I learned or things, little tips and tricks and stuff. So I threw this on there, that became a video. And then I also decided to write a blog post about it. And I put it out there and I thought it was interesting, but it's funny that this actually, I'm used to writing like very long form content with 3000 words. And this was something that was like, cool, let me copy the YouTube captions and just like throw it into a blog post, fix it up and, and do whatever. Very low level of effort. Yeah. But I think it's, it was just a, a sort of the right combination of being kind of fascinating and practical to people. And also I did work on the title a little bit. There's a certain sort of balance of being slightly intriguing, but not giving it all away up front, but also not mm -hmm. being clickbaity because you don't want to promise something and not deliver. So I called it something like TIL, you can access the, the user's camera with HTML, which itself sounds like pretty interesting, right? Like I would click on that, mm -hmm. but I also, I really hate those clickbaity like bet you didn't know what it is or whatever. So yeah, I wrote that. It was relatively short. It's got the video in it. It kind of just runs through what it is and how it works and what I learned. And then I actually submitted that to Changelog News and Jared accepted it. And I think at that point, Frost ended up posting it to Hacker News and then it just took off and it ended up on the front page somehow and which is weird because I had posted it to Hacker News as well and no one paid attention. <laughs> People pay attention to the things Feroz posts. Yeah, Feroz has clout, you know? Also, Hacker News is totally random. Oh, it is. Sometimes it'll skyrocket and sometimes it won't. Yeah, it was particularly interesting because someone else shared it because I didn't know what the heck was going on. So all of a sudden I was getting these server alerts that were like, hey, you've reached like 75% of your resources, 80% of your resources, 90% of your, like five <laughs> minutes apart. And I was like, oh shoot, what the heck is going on? I'm getting DDoSed, which is really ironic working at a company that has like DDoS protection because I like... <laughs> I've been there not long enough. I haven't. Should have gone I, to a static site. Well, it is it is technically like static served from cache, so I wasn't. It didn't go down or anything, but I was still getting resource warnings. But yeah, it was kind of a, a weird. It was a weird outcome because the combination of something that you spend. I spend so much time and effort on all these other blog posts, and they get like <laughs> crickets. And then uh, you just like th slap this together, throw it on, give it a good name, and whatever, and it takes off. And I'm not surprised by that. You hear that story over and over, but it was funny to, to be on the other end this time. I think while you were not clickbaity with the title, I think the fact that there was controversy around it helps a ton. Oh, absolutely. Like, I've had a few Hacker News front pagers back in the day when I was publishing more regularly, and they were usually the ones that people had. There were people with strong opinions on multiple sides, 
And sometimes I leaned into that and was maybe a little too clickbaity or a little too like opinionated on it. But even when when not, the thing that that makes it go crazy on on Hacker News in particular is like there's people arguing passionately on both sides of a something. Yeah, I wish it would have been one that I shared because I think that I would have liked to be more aware of the conversation that was going on because I shared it on Reddit and Reddit is just one of the worst places. <laughs> I mean, it's great, Fact. but it's amazing how much effort people will put into being mean and not even mean in a clever way, just like mean and just like, really, you're going to waste those keystrokes on. I've had that experience with Hacker News as well. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It didn't get the traction for me on Hacker News as much as it did for us. But I think it was useful to me to receive those, even the criticisms, because I just shared it as something that I learned and people were like, oh, you shouldn't, like, that's actually really bad for security. I hadn't even considered it at that point or considered it deeply to the level of detail that these people were going into. And it helped me reaffirm some of the discussions that I came to, I, I was prepared today. And even, you know, K-Ball, you pointed out some things that didn't come up and are legitimate concerns. And I would love to, yeah, talk to browser creators to see their opinion. But there's good sides, even to the naysayers. It just, as long as you're not doubling down on your opinion for the sake of ego, it can help you solidify your position. And some people were a lot more receptive to that as well and say, oh yeah, yeah, okay, I get it. Thanks for explaining it. Yeah, that's really cool. It's interesting because it's not even something that you were sharing with like any kind of like ego in the way that you were presenting it. It was just like, oh, something cool that I found on MDN. And yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like you didn't create it and put it in browsers or anything. Like it's just like sharing something cool. And then there's a bunch of controversy around it. It's interesting. The internet is a wild place. Yeah. I guess the takeaway here or a takeaway for any people out there that are creating content that if you put time and effort into content, even if it's a post like this, that was not something that I really poured my heart out onto spending a little bit of extra time to get the title right, I think was the big thing. Cause it also did really well on YouTube. I hear that's the thumbnails. You got to get the thumbnail right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh, I hate that. I hate that so much. <laughs> They're so terrible. But the algorithm, you know, the algorithm is a drama llama. It just, <laughs> it wants that vitriol to spread. But yeah, no, like taking a little bit of extra time to get that title. And I guess if it's YouTube, the thumbnail, right, also, and make it something that I don't support clickbait. And I think people can smell out clickbait these days and just like more people are not going for it. But if you can be authentic, but also a little bit intriguing, because I even changed the title. I think originally I had it titled like the HTML at capture attribute is rad. And then I, I changed it to something that was like, yeah, a little bit more, you know, spicy and engaging and like, oh, okay, let's, let's check that out. Yeah, I like it. And if users are listening and they want their articles to go viral, it sounds like the lesson is submit them to changelog news. Yeah, changelog has been great. I love it. Nice plug. <laughs> well, that's really cool. Thank you so much, Austin, for joining us today uh, and sharing this wonderful bit about you, about the HTML capture attribute, and about what it's like going viral on Hacker News. Where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, you can find me at austingill.com. That's gil, G-I-L, just one L. I was 
born without a second L. It's fine. <laughs> and I'd also encourage people to reach out to me on Twitter at Hey Austin Gill or Twitch or YouTube. Also, if I can give a shout out to Akamai and Linode, I am not saying this because they are my employer and they pay me, but I will say that there is probably a bias in that because I work there now, I'm able to see behind the curtains and how the sausage is made. And I, I really think that Akamai is best in class product for CDN, web application, like web security, uh, the edge compute platform is awesome. And Linode has been really great in letting me get in great user experience, great developer experience, and they have a lot of really cool offerings. So definitely want to give them a shout out. Yeah, awesome. I'm a long time Linode user as well. Yeah, they're great. Well, and at least for a long time, Changelog was all hosted on Linode. I don't know if that's still true, but it was part of the standard opening spiel hosted on Linode servers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, cool. Thank you so much, Austin, for joining us. Thank you, K-Ball, and we'll catch you next week. Yeah, thanks, guys. If Changelog news is news to you, let me tell you about it real quick. All week long on changelog.com, we curate, link to, and contextualize what's interesting in the software world. Then we package up the best of the week and deliver it directly into your inbox on Sunday mornings. In addition to that, there is a Changelog News audio show every Monday on the Changelog's podcast feed. It's short, 10 minutes or less, covers five things you absolutely should know about, and mixes in some pop culture sound bites to keep things lively. Here is an example story from last week's episode so you can get an idea of what it sounds like. Wilfred Hughes always wanted a structural diff tool, so he built Diftastic, and he calls it the most fascinating, most frustrating, and most challenging program he's ever written. How does it differ? See what I did there? From other diff tools? Instead of diffing files line by line or character by character, Diftastic is aware of the syntax of the actual programming languages involved, so it can be much more accurate. For example, Diftastic understands nesting, indentation, and line wrapping. What results are much cleaner diffs, which are easier for us humans to read. Be nice to the delivery guy, would you? It's not his fault he can't read! We will link to Wilfred's blog post where he goes deep on the process of building Diftastic, which got a lot of attention last week. A side note of interest, we first linked to Diftastic back in July of 2021, but this blog post was published over a year later and garnered a bunch of attention for the tool. Two takeaways from this fact. One, follow Changelog News for the freshens. We find cool stuff before it blows up. Shameless self-promotion. Two, if you released something and nobody seems to care, maybe try writing more about it as you have inspiration. Or as Carl Lang put it years ago when he was writing about having success online, do things, tell people. That's a great idea. I'm glad I had it. We also take submissions. So you can submit your blog, your project, your video, your whatever's interesting to software people. Who knows? Maybe you'll have as much success as Austin did. So get changelog news in your inbox at changelog.com slash weekly. Get changelog news in your ears at changelog.com slash podcast. And get yourself in changelog news at changelog.com slash submit. What are you waiting for? Let's do it. Seriously, do it, do it. Thanks once again to our partners at Fastly for CDNing for us, to fly.io for hosting our app servers and database, and to our beat freaking residents, Breakmaster Cylinder. Next up on the pod, we have an epic debate episode trying to answer the question, is React only great at being popular? 
find out for yourself when that episode drops into your podcast app next week.